You are listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We believe God is going to meet you right where you are today as you listen and dig into His Word. We all know that we face problems day in and day out of varying magnitudes and sizes, varying situations. They come big and small in our lives. Some are just minor annoyances, like pulling into the grocery uh, store parking lot and looking for a space and realizing, man, there's only one spot that's really close to the store, so I don't have to walk much. And you turn on that aisle only to realize that spot is kind of only halfway open because the person in the other spot next to it can't park between the lines, and you're frustrated. That's a small problem that we recognize. But then we've got bigger problems in our lives. Some annoy us and frustrate us on greater levels, like problems that make us want to quit something that we just started, like a gym class or a sports team that we've tried out for and made, but then we get to that first practice, we're like, man, we got to run this much? This is basketball, I shouldn't have to run like a track team, but we wanna quit, because we're like, that's not what I signed up for. But then there are some problems that affect people differently, where a problem might cause great difficulty for me, but be minor and small for you, and vice versa. What problems are you facing in your life right now? My wife and I, we, we faced a problem in our household with our washing machine, machine recently, where it was leaking puddles on our floor. And thankfully, we got the LVP that was waterproof, but it's still leaking puddles in a way that's like, that's, that's not good. But that single problem of a broken washing machine actually caused multiple layers of problems. Where on one level, we just had a lot of water to clean up. It's time-consuming, it's exhausting, it's frustrating. We don't plan for our day and say, all right, how much time are you going to spend to mopping up water today? But even there, that created another problem where one leak made us consider, well, can we use the washing machine? Do we continue to wash clothes? Because would that make the problem worse, which creates another problem, because now we're recognizing, man, we only have a limited amount of clean clothes, and we shouldn't recycle underwear. Hopefully we all would agree and say amen to that as as much as we can help. When we're on a mission trip, you know, sometimes you go without showers. But then we also recognize another problem, that because of the constant leaking, we had to keep a towel on the floor at all times. But do you all know the, the aroma of a wet towel left in a dark place for a lengthy time? It is horrible. It's moldy. It's mildew. It smells disgusting. And it makes you question, do I have to go through that space? At least that's what I would think in our house. But then also, even it made me think of swimming pools and and the public locker room. And it smells like, man, like people just throw their wet bathing suits in the lockers. And it's horrible. That's why I don't go. Also because I don't swim much. But what is your problem? What's your problem? I don't know what's burdening your shoulders this morning. I don't know what you face this week within your work week or, or what bad news you got just this weekend. Whether we acknowledge our problems or not, we all face them on a daily basis. It's the nature of this side of eternity ever since Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled against God in Genesis. 
Since then, our spiritual genetics, if you will, have been predisposed to sin and rebellion against God ourselves. And this creates even more problems and sufferings in our lives. First and foremost, a gap was created without our, our relationship with God, causing great distance between us and God the Father, a separation of which our great deeds, our money, and our best intentions could never close. That's the, the imagery that Romans 6.23 provides. It says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The biggest problem that we face in our lives, first and foremost, beginning with our sin, is that our sin puts us on one side where we are distanced and separated from God. And we earn death because of that. And the only way for us to get to God on the other side is through placing our faith and trust in Christ Jesus, who died on the cross, taking on the penalty of our sins so that we could be forgiven and cleansed. And we praise God for his solution for our biggest problem that we face if we are followers of Jesus. But as we recognize that this is just the, the realm of the problems that we create for ourselves, we also got to recognize that there are problems that we create for one another. And then there's problems that arise in our lives that have no one person or people to blame. They're just there. We've got problems all around us. We've been facing them all of our lives, and regardless of how similar or different our problems and their situations and circumstances may present, we all share in common the tension of struggling with the problems and then facing the challenging question of what do we do with our problems? Right. How do we face and overcome our problems is a tension and challenge that we share together. And so I hope that you will hear me as I say this morning that you are not alone. With whatever problem that you face, you're not alone. And hopefully our time together will be encouraging for you. But then also as we continue throughout this week, that we will break out into our connect groups with our people. Play on the My People series that we just ended, as Pastor Brent uncovered for us, that you and I, we are our people together. You're my people because we are first his people. So as we gather together, we can experience the fellowship that God designed for his church to embody throughout the ups and downs of life. I'm honored this morning to be teaching. If we haven't met, my name is Pastor Keevan. I'm the youth director here, and I'm teaching in place of Pastor Brent because he and his wife Carla and about nine of our brothers and sisters are actually in Memphis, Tennessee right now on a mission trip. We've got a picture of the team here, a great group. I will be joining them later this evening, and I'm excited to go and join them in the work as we Block arms with Monument of Love Baptist Church. Uh, Pastor Brent's actually teaching there this morning, uh, but with our, our brothers and sisters there who are led under the leadership of Pastor Derek Joyce, uh, this week we'll be serving alongside them, hoping to encourage them as they have their boots on the ground serving the city of Memphis day in and day out. Amen. But this morning, I'm honored as I get to teach what the Lord has placed on my heart, a lesson that I am in the process of learning myself and believe that we all are called to. And in fact, the students, volunteers, and leaders of InFocus Youth have actually heard bits and pieces of this message in the past couple weeks. And so some things might sound familiar to you, but there are some differences as well. So I encourage us all, as always, to listen with open ears and with eyes that are fixed on Jesus. 
And with eyes fixed on Jesus, that is actually the only way that we can answer this next question, or the only way we should be able to answer this next question. What would it look like to live in a world without problems? Maybe a scripture comes to mind. Maybe some, some uh, veggie tale portrayal of heaven. Maybe you're thinking of a TV show or a movie. That's what came to my mind first, which actually led to me doing a Google search of TV shows and movies that portray some type of utopia, some type of ideal life scenarios. And what I found was quite interesting. The, the first films that actually were providing some type of image or, or example of an, a utopian society began in the 1920s, just about 40 years after the first motion picture film. So what that means is that it took about one generation, about 40 years, for movie creators to start realizing, hey, this life ain't perfect, so with this movie, we can create our own society, our own world of what we feel like life should be like. So let's do it, because we're not experiencing it here on this earth. And thus, movies like Metropolis in 1927, or Lost Horizon in 1937, or Minority Report, fast forwarding 50 so years in 1998, or The Giver in 2014, there's multiple movies and shows out there that will show you some type of utopian society. And they all break down to some form or fashion of life with no poverty, life with no hunger, life with no crime. But all of these are subjective adaptations of life without problems. But the creator of life itself actually reveals in scripture what true utopia or ideal living looks like. We find it in Revelation chapter 21, verses one through four. It reads, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Amen. Doesn't that sound beautiful? The Apostle John wrote this detailed, God-given vision of what is to come when Jesus returns. He saw the new heaven and the new earth that was void of grief, void and absent of death, void and absent of pain and crying. And he even says that God wipes every tear. And so for the follower of Jesus, who trusts Jesus as Lord and Savior of their lives, we have the end hope. We know what the end of the story is. We know that when we die or when Jesus returns, whichever comes first, that we will see him face to face and we will experience heaven and fullness of life and pleasures forevermore because we are right there with him and we will not experience any of the suffering that we experience here on this side of eternity. We know where we're going. But the question is, is how do we get there? How do we get there? What do we do with the weight? How do we deal with the problems involving death, grief, crying, and pain between now and then? And the answer, I think, actually speaks to the now and the not yet that Pastor Brent has taught us about before. Maybe you're going, wait, 
How is that? I, I remember the now and not yet a little bit, but right now I am not experiencing any sort of peace, any sort of hope, and my situations are just bringing me down and making me feel like I am slowly dying an agonizing death. I cried in the parking lot before I walked into the building this morning. So I hear you saying that we can look forward to heaven with no tears, but that's not my present reality. And I will respond to that by saying that the now and not yet in this regard is mindful of our present situation and circumstances, but the focus and emphasis is on the character of God. Where I submit to you that the faithfulness and the compassionate character of the God who will wipe every tear in our future is the same faithful and compassionate character who walks with us day by day, comforting us, catching our tears in the present. But we've got to start by looking in the past. We'll start with Genesis chapter 16, verses 1 through 13, which is a lengthy passage, but I think it sets up the story and provides the context that we'll need to move forward. It starts off in verse 1. Abram's wife, Sarai, had not borne any children for him, but she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Sarai said to Abram, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her I can build a family. And Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband Abram as a wife for him. This happened after Abram had lived in the land of Canaan ten years. He slept with Hagar, and she became pregnant. And when she saw that she was pregnant, her mistress became contemptible to her. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and when she saw that she was pregnant, I became contemptible to her. May the Lord judge between me and you. Abram replied to Sarai, here, your slave is in your power. Do whatever you want with her. Then Sarai mistreated her so much that she ran away from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, Where have you come from and where are you going? She replied, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, go back to your mistress and submit to her authority. The angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your offspring and they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said, you have conceived and will have a son. You will name him Ishmael for the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. This man will be like a wild donkey His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. He will settle near all his relatives. So she named the Lord who spoke to her, You are El Roy. For she said, In this place have I actually seen the one who sees me. It's important that we keep in mind that the Bible is one large story telling of who God is and of his plan for redemption using smaller stories of real events within history. Now, if you're like me, you might forget some of the details of this particular story. Sometimes I forget that Abraham was actually originally Abram, but that's who we're talking about right here. And so I I hate that I forget some of these details because they reveal beautifully the nature of God. What this story reveals about the character of God is that he sees and he cares and he acts. This is before Abram and Sarai became Abraham and Sarah. Uh, A few chapters earlier in chapter 12, God made that promise to Abram. He said, I will make you the father of many nations, as we've saying in our VBSs. But what happens now is fast forwarding roughly about 10 years, 
when the promise was originally delivered, Abraham was, was probably about 75 years old. So now he's about 85, and a decade has passed, and they have borne no children. So now they're looking and saying, wait a second. What are we going to do with this problem? We can't have children, but we're called to be the father of many nations. So how do we get to the end result when we have so much difficulty in our face? Their circumstances were bleak. But let's catch the irony of Sarai's proposal. Since she is basically saying, hey, since God has promised to make us the, the father of many nations, but he has kept us. That was her wording. He has prevented me from bearing child. What do we got to do to make sure that we receive the promise? Tell you what, sleep with my servant, Hagar, and then perhaps through her we can build a family and you will be the father of many nations. Isn't that how we tend to take the steering wheel from God? where we look at our circumstances and start to think that, hey, God might need a little bit of my help so that he can do what he said that he's going to do about the problems that I face. See, this failure to trust God shows up in many ways in our lives, where we take matters into our own hands within our relationships, refusing to do all of the one another's that scripture calls us to do, and instead saying, nah, I just won't talk to that person no more. I'll just leave the relationship because that's what I feel I should do. Or within our decisions about our jobs because our lives aren't going quite how we planned. Or in our parenting, when our children aren't turning out the way that we wanted them to. We take matters into our own hands as though God needs our help or doesn't know what he's doing. But let's focus on the problems in this story. So Sarai, she had a problem of infertility and she blamed God for it. But she also ended up having a problem with Hagar and she blamed Abram for it. And then Hagar was just minding her business when she got brought into this clever plot to try to force God's hand. And as a result, she faced problems within her relationship with her mistress, Sarai. That's actually where we're focusing our attention this morning. Because as Hagar ran away from Sarai's mistreatment, this is where she encountered the angel of the Lord. This is where it all started, that as she was experiencing Sarai's mistreatment, she ended up experiencing compassionate grace from the Father God. It led to her naming God El Roy, the God who sees. And this is crucial for our time together this morning. Because Hebrews 13, 8 tells us that God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And so what that means is that if God was Elroy in the Old Testament, then he's also Elroy in the New Testament, and he will continue to be Elroy throughout all of eternity. Or if we want to break it down, we could say it like this. The God who saw is also the God who sees and is the God who will always see. Amen. Remember, the Bible is a large story revealing who God is and his plan of redemption using smaller real-life stories. So we see this character of God, this, this theme of his faithfulness continuing not just in Genesis, but also in the New Testament. His faithfulness as the God who sees. We'll see how Jesus demonstrates this in Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. We pick it up. It says, Afterward. He was on his way to a town called Nain. This is Jesus. Jesus' disciples and a large crowd were traveling with Jesus. Just as he neared the gate of the town, a dead man was being carried out. He was his mother's only son, and she was a widow. 
A large crowd from the town was also with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, don't weep. Then Jesus came up and touched the open coffin and the pallbearer stopped and he said, young man, I tell you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Then fear came over everyone, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. This report about him went throughout Judea and all the vicinity. See, at this point of Jesus' life and ministry, he was traveling from town to town, encountering many faces. He was spending time with people. He was teaching. He was performing miracles. People would would bring their sick friends and loved ones in hopes that if they could encounter Jesus, then Jesus would have the power and the sovereignty to provide the healing that was needed. Jesus engaged all of these people with all of their unique or similar problems, and he saw them and he cared for them. They would bring their whatever problem that they had in hopes that Jesus could do something about it. And we see Jesus continuing this character or demonstration of the character and heart of God in verse 12. Just as he neared the gate of the town, I repeat, a dead man was being carried out. He was his, only, his mother's only son, and she was a widow. A large crowd from the town was also with her. So we see Jesus isn't even in the town yet. Again, he's traveling, he's ministering in different locations, and as he's approaching this town, he sees a funeral procession. We see it. Actually, my, my seventh grade boys and I, we were talking about this in our connect group this past week, where we were, were naming out the different funeral homes that we drive by weekly, realizing, hey, there's plats over there. So we, we've probably driven by a funeral or a funeral procession at some point in our lives. And so we see right here, though, that Jesus responded quite different from how you and I tended to respond. We see the problem. A man had died, but similar to my washing machine, this problem also had multiple layers. So let's look at them. On one level, a son has died. I won't, I won't ask you to raise your hand to identify if you have lost a loved one, but with a room of this size, Surely there are multiple people and families in here who can relate. Some parents in here have lost their son or their daughter or perhaps their only son or daughter. And it's quite easy, unfortunately, for them to relate and empathize with this mother in this story. It's difficult when you know that the face of the loved one lost is a face that you'll never see again. It hurts is an understatement. But even if you have not lost a loved one or someone close to you, if you can just put yourself in the shoes of this mother and imagine what it's like for her to lose her only son, the one that came from her womb, the one that she named, the one that she would call his name on a regular basis and know that the next time she speaks of him, he won't respond. If we just imagine that, then we can get a glimpse of the pain and the sorrow that she feels. But yet that's not the only layer of her problem. The second layer of her problem was that Luke introduces the mother as a widow, which means that this is not her first experience of loss. She was a widow before this, which means that most likely we can infer that her son was alive and well and therefore able to provide some comfort for her as she lost her husband. But now with no husband and with the loss of her only son, it seems like she has no immediate family to help her get through because there's no mentioning 
of any other children. Now, can you imagine what it's like for her as she's coupling the pain of loss with loneliness? Maybe you're at that place right now. Maybe you've lost people near and dear to you through this pandemic. Maybe there's a a location that you're hesitant to visit now because with the loss of that loved one, the absence of his or her voice in the room or in the space just it creates a, a, a deafening silence, regardless of what else is going on, that makes it too difficult for you to bear. Wow. Or maybe you face a problem that doesn't include death at all. Maybe you are experiencing a loss of relationships and it leaves you feeling lonely and unseen and unheard and unloved. But regardless of how different or how similar our scenarios are to this woman, What we learn of this woman and her loss is that she is in a dark place, a painful place that we can at least somewhat relate to, but we still must understand that this is not the extent of her problem. There's another layer, that the woman is a widow. And that's not just a retelling of the previous two, but because as a widow, she is not able to financially support herself. You might remember the story of Ruth and Naomi and the the pursuit of a, a a kinsman redeemer, someone who would support her and their family by marrying after the loss of their husband. And that through that scenario, the whole pursuit was because they realized that it was difficult and nearly impossible for them to support themselves. So for this woman here in the New Testament as a widow, she recognized that it was hard for her to find work, which meant it would have been hard for her to earn money, which meant that it would have been hard for her to even know where her next meal would come from, or whether a roof would remain over her head. But look at Jesus' response to her in her situation. In verses 13 through 14, it says, When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, Don't weep. Then he came up and touched the open coffin, and the pallbearer stopped. He said, young man, I tell you, get up. I find it interesting and important that it is here that the Bible tells us that Jesus saw the woman. Maybe he was approaching the town. Maybe he was in conversations with the crowd uh, of travelers that were traveling with him and his disciples. Maybe he saw the pallbearers first. Maybe he saw the sign with the town's name. But after making all the other observations, he saw the woman, and he had compassion on her. That word compassion means to be moved with deep passion, a combination of love and sorrow. See, sometimes when we drive by those funeral homes in our area, or when we hear a fire truck or an ambulance, we hear it and we start to feel a little pity inside and go, man, I hope it's not bad. Man, I I feel for whatever family members are involved in this situation. Sometimes we'll offer up a a quick prayer. Lord, I don't know what's going on, but God, will you be there with your grace and your mercy? But yet we continue driving on. We don't turn into the the neighborhood or or drive and, and park near the exit so that we can help out unless we see it's someone that's close to us. We keep it moving because the situation doesn't impact us. But that's not compassion. Compassion is deeper than that. It's a strong emotion that often leads to some type of action. So Jesus did not just walk away feeling bad for her because that's not Jesus. Jesus saw her. He saw her tears. He saw her sadness. He saw the situation. And Jesus saw that she was dealing with the loss of her husband, plus now dealing with the loss of her son. 
And in fact, the reality that Jesus saw all of this and had compassion on her is even more magnified by the reality that he took the initiative. She didn't run to him and say, hey, I've heard about you. You can heal. Can you also resurrect? That wasn't what happened. He saw her from a distance and he noticed everything about the situation. And he said only two words in his action. Don't weep. Spoke those two words to her and then he moved towards the coffin and proceeded with actions towards the son. But before we keep reading and move on from there, we've got to understand that Jesus telling her don't weep was not him being rude. It was not him belittling her emotions. He wasn't saying, hey, big girls don't cry. That's not Jesus. For some reason, our culture views emotions and feelings on two polar extremes. Either we confide in the wrong places and feel intimacy as we confess our deepest struggles on social media or in a bottle or to people who actually don't care for us quite like Jesus does. And that's if we end up using our community at all or we act as though our feelings and emotions don't matter. So we can just sweep them under a rug as though we get some type of shiny medal of achievement because we proceeded through and we got the task or the job done without being emotional. Of course, I'm not saying that we let our emotions and feelings lead our lives and our decisions. We are to master them, not let them master us. But hear me as I say that Jesus cares very much for the emotions and the feelings that he created us to have. You can't look at me and say otherwise when Jesus wept over Lazarus' death when he knew that he was about to resurrect him. You can't tell me otherwise when Jesus was moved with compassion in this situation and many others or when he felt anger at the unjust atrocities taking place in the temple that led to him flipping over the tables. As both fully God and fully man, Jesus felt emotions and he cares about ours. And I'm stressing the importance of this because our understanding of who God is and how he created us impacts the way that we live and relate to him. If we don't understand God to be trustworthy with our future, then we take our matters into our own hands. We've already established that. But similarly, if we don't understand God to be trustworthy with our emotions and our feelings and with the confession of our weaknesses, then we also limit our experience of his strength and of his comfort. That's a paraphrase of, of Paul's testimony in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 where Paul described the deep agony and frustration, the exhaustion that came with the thorn in his side, leading him to cry out to God the Father saying, take it, remove it from me. And God answered back, no. No along with the promise that God would supply sufficient grace for Paul to endure. And that hope allowed Paul to boast in his weakness because of the confident understanding that he had in God's trustworthy power, compassion, and awareness of his situation because he knew that God was El Roy, the God who sees. That has to be our resolve as Christians. With the problems that we face, we must have confident hope that God cares very well for our whole being, which includes our emotions and our feelings. But after addressing the widow, as we get back to the story, we see Jesus addressed the deceased son and told him to get up. If you're that widow, you're probably thinking, this man is off his rocker. Like, he's telling me, don't cry, and I just lost a loved one. You don't do that. 
But then as she sees him going towards the coffin and speaking to her dead son, she's probably like, all right, maybe I, he, he deserves a little grace because now he's talking to a dead person. So that explains why he's talking to me this way. But actually, what we see, the way the sentence is structured, is that Jesus' compassion was tied to his expression to the widow, don't weep. And therefore, what we see is that Jesus was not being rude. He wasn't belittling his, her emotions. He wasn't even being crazy. But actually, what he was doing was he was preparing her for the miracle that he was about to perform. Right. He was telling her, hey, dry your eyes so you can clearly see what I'm about to do. Dry your eyes so you can see as I turn your mourning into dancing, as I turn your weeping into joy and laughter. See, throughout the story, we see Jesus revealing the character and the nature of God. We see an echo of the Old Testament as God in the flesh was demonstrating the nature and the character and the compassionate action of the God who sees. And as a result of the miracle, testimony of God's power and character spread through the land. And this character of God is consistent throughout Scripture from Old Testament to New Testament and then forevermore, which means that in our day-to-day, we have these opportunities to pray continuously, as Scripture calls us to, as we are more and more aware and more and more vulnerable with God about the problems that we face. And thereby, as we experience this character of God in our lives, we also have the opportunity to bear witness and spread news of his goodness to those around us. So back to the main question. What do we do as followers of Jesus who experience problems, as we are, are, are stuck between the now and the not yet? How do we manage our problems as followers of Jesus on this side of eternity, as we wait for Christ's return and our union with him in the new heavens and in the new earth that is void of grief and pain and crying and death. What we do is we trust in the God who sees us and we walk in faith by entrusting him with the cares of our hearts. That might sound like it's saying the same thing twice, but it's not. We can claim to trust God without actually entrusting him with the cares of our hearts. That word entrusting means to assign responsibility to someone. So we cast our cares on him. We assign responsibility saying, this problem in my life, God, is yours. You handle it. And I'm trusting that only you can, that you have the power. And you might wisely give me direction in your word or through the counsel of the body of Christ that tells me how to go about managing this problem. But I'm first trusting you with it. This has to be active and not passive in our lives So first and foremost, we cry out to God and we pray, we lament, we journal our prayers and we give it to him. But then we also seek professional help when need be from a counselor or from a therapist. And we lock arms with our brothers and sisters and we confess our problems to them, whether they are sins, doubts, fears, anxieties, worries, or burdens. And they mourn with us as we mourn, but they can't mourn with us if we're not vulnerable enough to acknowledge and confess it in the first place. So by our vulnerability and confession, first with God and then with his people and the gifts that he has provided, in so doing, we actively trust that God sees us and that he has the power to do something about our problems. But even if his solution doesn't look quite the way that we want it to, that he is compassionately caring for us and walking with us through it. 
We trust that his grace is sufficient and we boast in our weakness. We don't hide it or run from it. That's what we see in the Psalms. That's where we find David and other psalmists exclaiming their hope in God alone as their comforter. One of my favorites is in chapter 62, verses 1 through 2, where David cries, I am at rest in God alone. My salvation comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold, so I will not be shaken. David is acknowledging that he's facing problems. He's got difficulties in his life. A survey of his life would show that he fought Goliath, that he had to run away hiding for his life from Saul and eventually from his own son. David surely had problems, but he's saying there's one that I can run to every time, and he comforts me. He sees me, and he cares for me. We see him writing in chapter 55, verse 22. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. We see the the active action taking place. Cast it. We think of in the South, cast your fishing line, but that's still an intentional effort. You don't passively cast a fishing line. It's not. You throw it out there. So we throw it up to God. Lord, I need you. I am intentionally and actively crying out because I am in need of your protection. I am in need of your provision. I am in need of your grace and your mercy within my circumstances. And Peter echoes this in the New Testament while also informing us of the humility that is required for us to take part. In chapter 5, verse 6 through 7 of 1 Peter, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him because he cares about you. What we're talking about is not just some some robotic and religious instruction for us to complete as task managers. It's a call with a promise. Cast your cares, do your act of work, but don't just do it because you're being told. Do it because you recognize that you are loved and that God cares for you. I would be lying if I told you that this is easy to do. In fact, the truth is is that it's, it's, it's difficult, but it's also inconvenient. It's much easier to sweep our problems under a rug, to ignore and try to bury and suppress our emotions and feelings. I even faced tension in my work week and challenges and problems that struck feelings of anger, sadness, pain, loss, and overwhelming grief just this week as I was writing and preparing this message. And I found myself at this this point of of wanting to suppress and wanting to bury and wanting to, to just ignore, Particularly because I've also been learning over the past 18 to 24 months that, that I'm, a, I'm a doer. I, I'm a, I, I tend to busy myself with work, especially when I'm feeling, feeling frustrated and angry or sad. Because it's easier to do stuff than to sit at the feet of my Savior and say, this is my heart. This is where I'm at. Can you meet me here? And so what it leads to is it leads to me doing a lot of busy work, like cleaning a toilet or doing the laundry or reorganizing the boxes in the pantry by size so that then I could take a step back and say, not only was I productive, but look at the good work that I just did. But through all of that, it's, it sounds like just unflattering tasks 
an odd usage of time, but at the heart of it is a lack of trust in God the Father as the God who sees and cares for me and me taking matters into my own hands, where even if I do go to Jesus, it's, it's still a, a, a trivial matter of, let me just turn to uh, the David and Goliath so I can see how mighty God is without actually acknowledging the problem that I need God to be mighty in. But I don't want to just know Jesus. I want to be known by him. So as I sat to prepare this message, I felt this tension in my heart. The tension that says, you can confess this right now. You can seek God as your rock and as your refuge. Or you can mask away and say, I can't right now because I'm too busy because I've got a message to prepare. I was tempted to do what we do as Christians and say, I'll just worship God by offering good works to him. But I will hinder the surrender of my heart which is what God truly desires as the greatest worship. And it's only by the grace of God that I acted differently from what I wanted to do, that the Holy Spirit challenged me with this question, what's the point in believing that God sees and cares for you if you don't allow yourself to be seen and cared for? See, Hagar, she could have lied to the angel of the Lord. When he asked, where are you going and where are you coming from? She could have hid her cares from the angel. She could have said, I'm just going for a walk. You know, I got this baby weight, so I'm trying to exercise and stay fit. She could have lied. But it was in her honesty and in her vulnerability that she encountered God. And that's the same place where we encounter him. What it means is that the same God who saw the widow and who saw Hagar and her needs is the same God who sees me and mine as well as you and yours. The same God who had compassion on them also has compassion for you and I. He may not respond in the same, with the same action and the same solutions because we recognize that every time someone dies, they're not being resurrected on this side of eternity. But although his solutions might look different, it's the character of God that allows us to trust him because we know whatever action he chooses, he's wisely choosing best for us. He may show up in the form of a friend or in a loved one right when we need it. Or that random phone call from someone we haven't talked to who's genuinely checking on us saying, how are you? Which presents us an opportunity to acknowledge and confess what's truly going on. He may show up through the speaking through your connect group facilitator this week. He may show up in worship by encouraging your heart with the truth of who he is. Or he may remove the situation like Paul requested but God chose not to for Paul, but he wisely knows best. And so my hope right now is that as we transition into this final song, Graves into Gardens, that right now as we pray, we will, we will examine ourselves, examine our hearts for the problems that we are withholding from God, the problems that we bury in our hearts, the emotions and, and the feelings that we suppress because of the difficulty and the inconvenience that is required to actually process them, but that we will do it with the heart that says, Lord, I want to worship you in spirit and in truth. And this is the truth of where I am today. This is what I'm facing. This is what's inside of me. This is the wickedness that I'm feeling right now, is I want to get revenge on the person who wronged me. This is how I want to abandon this relationship right now, and I just want to walk away, even though you call me to love one another, to bear with one another, 
to forgive one another. I'm tempted to take matters into my own hands, but God, I want to trust you right now. So let's pray. You have been listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We hope God met you right where you're at today. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you're listening from and visit infocuschurch.org for more on all that's going on in the life of our church.